Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Trundle Bed Tales, the podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder, historic foodways, one-room schools, and other social history. This is Sarah Utah, the host and creator of Trundle Bed Tales. Find us around the web under Trundle Bed Tales and on your favorite social media platform. If you listen or just have an account on iTunes, please leave positive feedback because that helps people find the show. This is episode... 101, and we're going to be talking today with Deborah Reed on agricultural history and Laura Ingalls Wilder. But before that, we have just a little housekeeping to do. And I guess there was more dishes to wash than I thought. Uh, And I want to remind everybody that you can be part of the show if you want to call in and make a question or a comment. If you want to just listen without having to uh, be near your computer when you're streaming, uh, you can listen or talk by calling 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. 5253 or 1-877-633-9389, 1-877-633-9389, and we actually got the chat room open today, yay, so that is also going, if you want to comment through there, you can, And if later you want to catch this episode or any other episode, you can both stream them through the Blog Talk Radio website or you can download them for free as a uh, MP3 on iTunes. And I think that's probably all of our housekeeping for today. And with my gosh, it just keeps going. It must have been Thresher's dinner, and I didn't realize it. All right, with that, let us welcome Deb to the show. Welcome. Hello. Good to be here. And, and do you want to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, Deb? Sure. I grew up uh, down in southern Illinois on a farm on the Mississippi. The family's still there. And uh, when when I first read a Laura Ingalls Wilder book, I think I first read Farmer Boy. I must have been in fourth grade. That that life described was uh, seemed to be a lot like mine. Uh, My father's father was born in 1876. uh, Small farm, diversified. 
school teachers in my father's side of the family. My mothers were 1880s. They they were tenant farmers in southern Illinois. So, it you know, if there was an affinity for those Laura Ingalls Wilder books, even though they were about places not southern Illinois in time periods much earlier than my life. Uh, the hard work, the horses, that was all, you know, part of my life experience. And the agricultural history that was that they always, or the agriculture they talked about, which was then agricultural history, always piqued my interest. So uh, I don't know how much they may have had to do with the career that I picked, which history museums and agricultural history and teaching, but I I think they uh, have something to do with my being where I am today. Well, they certainly do really capture farming, although I think a lot of people don't really pay attention to the agricultural side of them. But before we get past that, I think you ought to also tell them the extremely cool job you have today. (laughs) Uh, since January of 2017, I have been the curator of agriculture and the environment at the Henry Ford, and that is the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation and Greenfield Village up in Dearborn, Michigan, and the Benson Ford Research Center, which has the equivalent of five miles in linear feet of archival material, a real remarkable treasure trove of American history and the Ford Rouge factory tour where the Ford Motor Company assembles the F-150 pickup. So my job as curator of Ag in the Environment is to find, well, to explore those amazing resources and to tease out additional authentic stories about the American past that helps us understand agriculture and the environment. And if people out there are unaware of the Henry Ford, uh, Henry Ford in Greenfield Village, it was really an amazing thing that Henry Ford got going. He really wanted to record social history. And so his collection, it wasn't enough for him to have like one sad iron. He had like every sad iron that had been made a model of it. And it's just an incredible collection. And I love him. And when Laura went to Detroit for uh, the children's uh, literature, or let's see, literature, yeah, children's literature week, or children's book week, that's it, children's book week, uh, Mm -hmm. she uh, was sponsored by a um, department store in, uh, Hudson's department store in Detroit, and while she was talking, El Manzo came out to Greenfield Village. I had no I, idea. I'm going to have to explain that. It is exciting. We So we are celebrating our 90th anniversary this year. And as I said, we have five miles in linear feet of archives and millions of artifacts. So that little tidbit, I need to learn more about. That's amazing. Well, you, you really should. There's There's a nice thing and he talks about looking at all the the tractors and I think he even mentions that herringbone flooring and he says that you could get a better lunch at the dining car and I can't remember the name the one that's still there the little cart um and the Greenfield Village the lunch wagon ah I can't remember its name 
Yeah, the night owl lunch stand. Yes, that's it. He says you can get a better meal there uh, for, I think it was for a quarter than you could in Springfield. So <laughs> he really liked his visit. Wow, yes, I'm definitely going to have to look into nope. that. The upshot is everybody out there ought to go visit the the Henry Ford and visit Deb and all the cool agriculture stuff and see the car Kennedy was shot in and all sorts of cool things. So I just mentioned that because that's my mom's favorite thing from when she was up there. She just still can't get over the Kennedy's car. But that is getting kind of off topic. (laughs) We are here today to talk about agriculture. So... (laughs) uh, Agriculture is a really important part, not just of um, the America, not just of the Little House story, but of America's story. And um, one of your uh, sort of professional things has been to study agriculture and the impact of agriculture. So, uh, what what do you think people ought to know about agriculture? Oh, that's a huge question. So I can paraphrase a little bit. Three words, food, fuel, and fiber. I borrow those from uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Farm American Farm Bureau Federation, which in the early 1980s, after the farm crisis, decided that they needed to figure out a way to engage people's interests in agriculture and help make it relevant. So they devised this national curriculum that focuses on the three, say, derivatives or byproducts of agriculture, which everyone needs to know about, and that's agriculture as a source of food, fuel, and fiber. I So I, I take that maybe a, a step further when I think about the agriculture historically when, you know, up until the early 20th century, not well, not the majority of Americans, but most Americans had some direct connection to a farm family, even if they didn't live on a farm. They they took this, you know, it was second nature knowing how they related to agriculture. But uh, today, when what less than two percent of people in the country have any understanding of agriculture, the the historic component is is as important as the modern food, fuel, and fiber. So think of it as food security, and where do you get your meal? Historically, they grew it, or they existed somewhere where they had a market that they could sell it for the non-farm population to eat. Uh, Their clothing was totally dependent upon agricultural byproducts, natural fibers, cotton, wool, hemp, or flax. And then the fuel, we mean, you know, least about how that relates to agriculture, but the U.S. Forest Service was part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And forestry played a major role in, of course, a fuel, burning wood, but then tobacco burned. And then early fuels like ethanol and other byproducts like distilled alcohols came from agricultural products, corn especially. So I I think of those historic connections to that modern curriculum 
and uh, our food security, clothing and comfort, and alternative or biofuels. So agriculture really has always played an important role uh, in American culture, and it still does today. It's just a little bit more invisible. And even people who, you know, sort of live in a ruralish area uh, don't always understand what's going on with farming. Uh, My neighbor, uh, when she was, this was some years ago even, but she was teaching uh, second grade, and she told her kids she lived out in the country, and uh, they, one of the little boys insisted, no, she couldn't because there wasn't a horse and buggy in the parking lot. And if you lived in the country, mm-hmm. you had to have a horse and buggy. And uh, it's just, it's amazing um, how even kids in Iowa don't really understand agriculture. So people who live in, you know, the suburbs or New York or L.A. have no chance of knowing anything about it. Ah, but they may grow things on their porch so that, yeah, they, they may not know what it, what, they may not have a comprehension of how farming in Iowa happens, <laughs> but they may grow things. And that's that connection that we can build on. So we're kind of trying to look at how agriculture Uh, affected Laura's life and one of the the things I don't think people understand so much is about the wheat culture that was going on then because what Pa really always was trying to do was establish a wheat farm and uh, that's even different even if you do know about agriculture today so much of what you hear at least around here is corn and soybeans but wheat used to be the main focus of American agriculture. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, glad to. The uh, Well, in fact, Ing- Pa Ingalls was one of a veritable army of American farmers that were trying to help supply the, the grains for the, the growing population that lived in cities. And most of that came out of upstate New York. This was back when when the Wilders had their, you know, the, the era of the farmer boy, um, the 1860s, uh, the wheat belt. Now, they didn't live anywhere near the wheat belt in upstate New York. They were way far north, um, but they managed to put together a very prosperous farm nonetheless. But a, a fungus had practically destroyed the wheat crop in New York, and yet people still needed uh, flour to feed themselves. So that wheat belt kept moving west uh, into the new state of Wisconsin in the 1840s and then into Minnesota and the Northern Plains. Uh, The climate up there did not really support growing hard winter wheat, which is what the eastern wheat belt had been upstate New York into Illinois, southern Wisconsin. So there's a growing uh, investment in what they call the hard spring wheat, the hard red spring wheat. And that 
they could plant in the spring and they harvested in the late summer and then threshed it, you know, with something. So that, 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 so different species of wheat was what they were trying to grow. I, I find it interesting that, that, that Almanzo, when he first goes into South Dakota and homesteads, he likewise is going with the intent of raising seed wheat. So he would have produced a really clean seed that he carefully sorted and then either had contracted with or sold to a seed company that they then could distribute that seed to farmers that were like Mr. Ingalls wanting to farm wheat for markets. There's there's a whole network that's required to keep this farming profitable too. You have to have the the storage facility. You have to have transportation to get it to mills. You have to have storage systems within the the places where the mills develop, and and you have to have a technology that can process this different kind of wheat, this spring wheat. So the the Wilder and the Ingalls farms develop within this large system. None of them operate in a vacuum. And that is one thing I think people um, aren't always understanding while Almanzo is uh, defending his seed wheat as much as he is because it isn't just um, wheat isn't just uh, the same all over the place. Farmers back then were trying to um, use natural selection to get the, the kind of wheat that would work best on the farm where they were living. And so Almanzo had a wheat that was sort of already adapted to that area. And if he bought from back east, it would be the more generic wheat and he'd have to kind of start again. And that mm-hmm. kind of held true till uh, they came up with hybridization, which is what people grow today is hybrid. So it's a, more coming from one source rather than trying to uh, grow and focus your seed on one particular kind of microclimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you me- you mentioned microclimate. I find this fascinating, but um, so stop me when I say too much. But the, the whole idea of a microclimate out of that comes these things that they call land races that are locally, they, they evolve locally. They suit the climate and the cultures around them have, you know, ways that the food ways of that people uh, link to that land race. But as people migrate, they bring their local grains with them. So there's been a lot of, discussion among living history farm types about the uh, turkey red wheat which is a a hard winter wheat that came to Kansas in the 1870s early 70s with Mennonite immigrants from Russia but and and sometimes people think well that that's an important heirloom well, it is in that it's a historic variety. The the historic variety that immigrants brought to the hard red spring wheat belt up there in uh, eastern South Dakota 
was Red Fife, which came from Glasgow, and it came about 1842. But the the land-grant colleges and the plant scientists that work in those are trying to figure out better wheat varieties to grow in the plains. They know that drought destroys crops. They just, it just drought destroys farm families, it destroys entire communities. So they, they begin to crossbreed the red fife with other, uh, other kinds of grains. Um, ultimately, they develop this, this uh, wheat called Haynes blue stem. And another one by 1906, Marquis, and those are crosses of the fife with other types of wheat, so that they can they can make them more drought tolerant. They can make a crop that's usually that means a shorter, less tall wheat, so it's it you know it requires less moisture. But they also try to make them resistant to that fungus that destroys wheat. Uh, which uh, is a rust, leaf rust or stem rust, and and they're trying to create uh, crops that mature more rapidly so that they can deal with the shorter growing seasons. So it's amazing that uh, some of the varieties we might think of as, as historic are developed in the 1870s and 80s, combinations of these heirloom or landrace wheats and uh, and hybridizing them. They're all hybrids. They're all produced through selective breeding, crossing of species. Uh, the whole idea of, of, you know, genetic modification with inserting different DNA, that's not practical for plants until the 1980s, 87. So there's, there's a, a century of plant genetic research on wheat varieties that, that's that's fascinating to study, um, and uh, as as these plant scientists try to figure out the the best wheat that can grow in a certain place in a certain season. So, what would be your best guess on uh, on what type of wheat they were growing in around Smet uh, when Almanzo and uh, Pa was were planting there? I love it that you say best guess <laughs> because I believe that it was red fife because it's I've I read a few uh, technical experts with the, uni, the the land grant universities in the Dakotas and in Minnesota and red fife is the variety that surfaces most frequently as a as a hard red spring wheat suitable for that specific part of South Dakota. And then if they had continued, they might have grown Preston or into the 20th century, if they had continued farming, they might have grown Marquis. But Red Fife is probably the type of hard red spring wheat that Almanzo would have been growing for seed when he first went out there in, what, 1879? Yeah, in 1880. And so uh, while um, Almanzo and Laura certainly got run out of, uh, well, what would be South Dakota with all sorts of problems, 
not everybody did get uh, driven out because there are, of course, still farmers in South Dakota and all over the West today. Do you think that the the Homestead Act really did what it set out to do? Oh, wow, that's a great question. And and I'm going to make the answer a little longer than just Almanzo and and um, Charles Ingalls. I I can't tell you how many millions of people headed west and how much national investment occurred. Those statistics are out there. But what I do want to emphasize is that the United States from its very beginning in 1876 looked at land as its capital and and if you you know quoting Thomas Jefferson there's land for the you know hundred millionth generation that that was that was the perception of people who began a nation that was that even then was believed to be a continent it just was owned by other nations both domestic nations and international nations but as the U.S. acquired more territory that public land became the means by which the nation helped pay for itself so uh, the the first land policy was really the land ordinance of 1785 which laid out the survey system of township and range lines and the prime meridians that that kept moving across the nation as the basis for those survey systems allowed people, you know, from the old Northwest all the way to the Pacific Coast to claim land, often that other people owned. Uh, the books do a great job of, of showing conflict in those places that other people owned. Um, but and then you so then by 1862, the the U.S. government is fighting a war against the Confederate States of America, and they still turn to the public lands as they're like to diversify their income. Right, they're going to 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 grant this land to loyal Americans or immigrants who who you know cast their lot with the United States and in exchange they can settle what 160 acres live on it for 7 years it, it's i don't i i can't calculate i'm sure someone has the the economic development that that meant for the nation it was combined with the policies that expanded the railroads across, you know, the transcontinental railroad and none of, none of those trans infrastructure expansions could have happened without individuals like Almanzo and, and Ingalls or Charles Ingalls moving into those places. And they certainly built a whole lot of small towns, which personally, I am glad to be able to live in the Midwest. I really do think it's the best place in the whole country. And that's exactly what 
the the national government wanted, particularly in the context of of you know fighting the civil war, they saw it as their venture capital. That's what could entice you know people down on their luck and uh, seeking new new opportunities. I, I mean it, it it's truly that that displaced the indigenous people, the independent domestic nations all, all across the continent. Um, that 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 opportunity as well as the the stress that it posed on the place where those new people came. Uh, I, I find it fascinating because I did a little bit of looking into the genealogy of, of both the Wilder and the Ingalls families, and they they all, at least, well, some of them had people, uh, you know, who had been early settlers, colonists, before the U.S. was a nation. But they, they all come out of New England and then New York and then uh, just – simplified Minnesota and then the Dakotas and that's historical geographers mark that that cultural expansion I mean that's a common trap you know common route west let's put it that way what what adds value you know complicates things from that kind of cultural geography tale of progress is the fact that the Ingalls family did not just follow that. They also went into the territory that was still technically Indian territory near Independence, Kansas, and and then, you know, moved back north and then moved west. I each of those migrations had to do in some ways with expanding transportation and infrastructure. And I, I just that these books are so important as lessons in in those kinds of choices. I I think there's also lessons yes. to be learned from those books about you. I don't know when you read Farmer Boy, it's like you you can gain fifty pounds as you go through that book just by smelling the food they eat. You don't get that same sense. I don't think in the other books on the prairie that that life in that less less uh, familiar landscape is harder on people. It was harder on people, and I, I just think that's another important part of figuring out how a place affects the people in that place and the ways that they adapt to that place. It, it really does um, affect what you can do in in terms of farming, of course. There's certainly a lot more water here in Iowa than, well, actually right now there's more water than we want in eastern Iowa, but yeah. there's uh, certainly more here than there is in South Dakota, and that certainly does affect the farming methods and the plants that you can grow. I think it's uh, important, too, when you think about the the families individually, about whether they were successful or not, and this has been something I've been thinking about a lot lately, is you have to understand the goal. Because sure, it would have been great to be rich. 
but mostly they wanted to build a farm and be able to stay on a farm and live a farm life. And that's true of so many people today that take jobs in town in order to keep the farm going. You know, it isn't that you're trying to get rich. It's that you really value the farm life and you want to keep your family on the farm. So it, it, you maybe sometimes to judge how well or poorly people are doing, you have to make sure you know what goal they're shooting for. So that's just one of my my things I've been yeah. thinking about a lot lately. Yeah, so I okay. I, now we I actually do have a oh oh yeah. No, I wanted to say at the end of uh, we actually oh no. Go ahead. Oh well, I think we've got a little bit of a delay. So sorry to the listeners for that, but. Freedom and independence, these are words that you hear frequently in in the books, in different places, and that harkens back to those founding fathers' ideas where they believed that farmers would be independent businessmen, not, not uh, right, dependent wage laborers. They would theoretically, the, the landowning farmer would be free to make his own decisions. But then I think it's very telling that the U.S. government invests a huge amount in making sure that those that nation of farmers is supported by the national government. So I I I do not know the answer to this. You know, there were no uh, opinion polls in 1875 or 1890. But how many of the farmers who have who settled a home in the Homestead Act, or were part of that Timber Act that uh, Almanzo, obviously the Timber Culture Act, that you know he said, well I'll plant my trees, and it'll help me claim this land, or Charles Ingalls with his preemption claim. How many of them actually then thought, I have the government to thank for this? I don't know. Because the other part of the investment was the family's physical labor, and that labor was rigorous, as the books always emphasize. And uh, and and that hard work paid off for many, as you had mentioned. You know, many survived these these trials and tribulations on on the northern plains. Um, I. But many did not, and how many of them, you know, blamed themselves, blamed the environment, blamed the weather, blamed the droughts is hard to say. But but I don't know when Rose Wilder wrote this, but I found this uh, as I was doing some research, and, and, and she says, quote, it took seven successive years of complete crop failure with work, weather, and sickness that wrecked his health permanently and interest rates at 36% on money borrowed to buy food to dislodge us from that land. So they didn't leave willingly. <laughs> they, that Their identity, that's oh. the identity of farm families is so tightly bound to the land. Yes. Well, what uh, we do have a caller, and since we do, let's see. 
if they've got a question for us. So, area code 404, what do you have to say? Uh, well, good job. Uh, it's interesting uh, to listen to, you know, something that you wouldn't normally look into. It's interesting to see somebody, you know, so into it. Uh, I guess I got two things to say to you guys. The first thing would be how many of those people generationally who we can all kind of agree that intervention from the government allowed this to happen, uh, future generations of those families would yell at other people about taking a nickel from the government and how they pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. So I, generationally, I wonder how, how long before the memory of how people actually got started uh, starts to dissipate and then people start creating hero, heroic stories, uh, you know, for their, for their progeny. Uh, and the second part will be, I, I think we, we got to be careful when we discuss in history in America, when we don't discuss what, you know, what's actually going on. So like when we talk about uh, the, the buying the land from the French, so that was because they lost the war to Haiti and Napoleon needed money. So the, the Haitian revolt was a huge part of America even being able to buy, uh, you know, that land from France. And when you talk about, you know, Native American uh, nations who were here before and we present this as progress were actually kind of, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's Orwellian, but we, we complete this American story without any of the tragedy. And I think we'd be better off in telling the story with the tragedy and the triumph and saying, okay, we did these things badly. Uh, we did these things well, or, you know, mistakes were made, but we tried to fix them and, you know, just, just getting the full context. But when we tell these stories, without the terror and the violence and the enslavement and the genocide. I, I think we do a disservice to ourselves. And then we end up where people are blindsided when they start, you know, finding out things and, and feel like they've been lied to in school. So I know that was long-winded, but I wanted to get all of that in. But this is really interesting. I'm, I'm learning a lot listening to this show. Thank, well, thank you, you thank very you much. For that. Thanks for calling in. Yes. And it's certainly true that there are other other stories uh, at, that are part of it that uh, are not very nice stories, and um, that's an important to remember too. But that's probably a good place to kind of shift gears because the other thing I wanted to talk to you about today, and uh, it is because one of the things that you have really kind of um, focused on in your work is how people have it in their head. They have one picture of sort of how agriculture was in the past and that isn't always um, how, how it was at one point isn't how it was at all points. So uh, let's jump forward a few years when the Wilders are living in Mansfield and what would um, a small farm kind of be looking like in the 1920s, 1910s, 1920s. So the, the, they described that farm in the Ozarks as a fairly lucrative 
that may be too strong a word, but it was a diversified farm that was raising poultry, dairy, and fruit. And ultimately, from, what, 1894 until, well, they accumulate 200 acres, I think. So I, in order to understand that farm, I have to put it on the map. And it does sit in the Ozarks. And it sits on the the Katy Railroad, which is the St. Louis that, or the, the railroad that runs St. Louis towards Texas and then continues. Uh, they obviously were raising things that they could eat, but they were also selling either through the the town near or on to other stops along that railroad, Joplin one direction or Springfield to the north or St. Louis to the east. So the that 1900s, 1910s, 1920s farm is so far removed from that single crop culture that they worked with in the Northern Plains as to be not recognizable. And yet it's kind of farm that was much closer to what Almanzo had grown up with uh, that part of the Ozarks, people who aren't there may not think of it this way, but that's a wonderful area for orchards. And, you know, the land of the Big Red Apple was a, a, a name for it, and people took it seriously the, uh, because of the orchard crops. That all has to be processed, so those that requires canneries and, you know, places to make jams and preserves and apple butter. So they're, they're still part of an infrastructure. It's just an infrastructure that uh, allows for diversification. And at that time, a lot of those small towns in those places, you know, fairly isolated, had those kinds of small, often family-owned manufactories so that that stuff that was grown in that area could be could be preserved in some way for shipment on to other to other markets. So that's without knowing specific details, without being able to read their account books. Obviously, they benefited from the income from the books after the nineteen after nineteen the early nineteen thirties. But um, before that, they were making a living because they were diversified in a place that supported processing of that diversification. And it really is a totally different experience there in the Ozarks than it's on and the Plains in terms of what grows there, in terms of um, the variety of what they could have. But it's got that same uh, sort of support. They're still having to deal with the railroad. They're still having uh, the small town to be the market town. Um, and so it's, it's similar, but it's different. Um, mm-hmm. In the 1920s, 
uh, we get up there and people send, tend to start thinking of tractors today, but would there be tractors in the 1910s and 20s? Oh, that's a great question. So <laughs> some of the folks that were the first to buy tractors were those farmers that were up there in uh, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas. They, they've got those huge acreages, and they, they invest in these large steam-powered tractors. The, the, there's dozens of companies building these kinds of tractors. It's not, I mean, the Ford tractor becomes so wildly popular for, for family-sized farms, for small farms, because it's affordable, but also because it's, well, affordable. <laughs> but it's something that farmers can use that have, you know, 160 acres of rocky farmland or uh, 40 acres, which is what the Wilders first purchased, of really hilly, rocky, undeveloped land. But a farm family like them might invest in a small tractor after 1918 because they could afford it and they could run it in small acreages. They could never, it wouldn't have made any sense for them to have bought a big steam tractor. As many of the of the folks that, you know, they may have known up in South Dakota may have found that they could purchase. Do you know, did they have a tractor in Missouri? Well, I know they didn't. I actually don't know for sure that they never had one, but they, I think, uh, focused more on the horse's uh, angle. They did have a car starting in the 1920s, but I haven't ever caught anything about them using a tractor but what but actually my great-grandfather actually did buy a tractor in 1918 so mm-hmm. um, it's an interesting thing and people also I don't think necessarily realize the big impact that made because when you're farming with horses part of your uh, land needs to be dedicated to raising food for the horses and you have to feed them whether you're using them that day or not as opposed to tractors that you only have to put fuel in them when you're actually using them well fill them up I mean you don't drain them out or anything but so that freed up a whole bunch of land to increase the production when you did yep. get a tractor they they figured but that it's a surprisingly could... oh well, every, yeah, for every horse that you – you could put five more acres into crop every horse that you got rid of. But they, a horse that stayed around for, for quite a while, wasn't it like the – it was some kind of really late date before tractors outnumbered horses on the farm. Yeah, the – I mean, the a lot later, I think, than people – yeah, the Ag Census stops counting horses in 1950. But, and, uh, you know, maybe part of that Alonso, wasn't the adoption, though. They're... Go ahead. 
go ahead and ask your question. It, we have a time delay of about 10, oh, no. of 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed. Um, no, I was, uh, you were going to say more about the, the conversion. That's fine. I was just going to say that it isn't also just the, um, the efficiency that made people buy tractors, but there had also been, uh, in the, I think it was in, in the late 30s when there was sort of a uh, epidemic of some some disease. Was it a sleeping disease or something? And they lost a lot of horses, and that kind of sped up the adaption. It wasn't like, oh, there's a tractor. Everybody buy one. Yes, illnesses in horses, the the fact that you could put more land into a crop if you slowly got rid of your horses. Tractors were first really plowing machines. You still had to have horses for generating power for a lot of specific tasks on a farm. A few farmers just, you know, got rid of the horses and all the machinery and bought all new tractors and new tractor-powered machinery. So it's, it's at least a generation-long transition, 40 years from the time that the affordable tractor comes onto the farm and the, and the pretty much extinction of, of horses as a draft power source. What, and I should, I, I, this is a research topic that interests me. Uh, you know, Almanzo loved horses. So did they, I know they maintained, I assume, breeding stock of Morgan horses but do they also invest in the retention of horses as draft power? Today, people will argue that organic farmers need to continue to use draft animal power because farmers, I mean, technically speaking, farmers that use any kind of internal combustion engine are not fully operating as organic farmers. So there's a, a re, you know a continued interest in alternative power on farms and the role of draft animals in providing that power. So even though the U.S. Department of Agriculture stopped mm-hmm. counting horses as draft horses in 1950, uh, I don't know that they have ever started, you know, recognizing that there's alternative farmer or alter farmers in alternative agriculture that still depend upon them. Yeah, I I don't think um that 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 is I think one problem with how people tend to look at American history that it's always a progress and once you've passed something out you don't always recognize when it starts to come back or when there's an increase again, maybe to the point where you should start counting them. Um, uh, similar things going on with one-room schools. There are a lot of schools that are, are one-room but aren't part of a K-12 district, and they don't get counted either. So it, it's interesting. Oh, and along that line, how many people farm in cities? So back towards the beginning of the program, we were talking about you know, when, where do people understand what agriculture is about? The, the the rebirth of farming in the cities has gotten the attention of the Census Bureau. 
I think it was 2017 ag- agricultural census when they made a serious effort to, to document uh, market gardeners or other uh, urban gardeners, urban farmers. Part of that is because there's a definition of what a farm is, and people farming in cities often do not have the required acreage to count as farms. And then there's the debate about is a garden equal to a farm? <laughs> you you can produce you know a remarkable amount of produce on say an acre or two acres, but to be a farm you must have five acres. So there's, you know, definitions and and, uh, perspectives on what a farm is has been shaped by an American scale of agriculture that doesn't always allow for full inclusion of different types of farmers. Well, that's true. Uh, Actually, our county has always well not always but has in recent years held that you had to have a minimum of 40 acres to be a farm and they actually were looking at that recently uh, in response to people who wanted to be doing um, market farms and Mm -hmm. um, they and uh, wanted the uh, financial benefits of being defined as a farm and they're trying to decide if they should change their minds and let them or not. So Mm -hmm. it is, I think something people are really kind of looking at. And a lot of these things that people, you know, are starting to do as if they are new things, it's just sort of picking up things that people used to do, like having uh, chickens in town that used to just be kind of a, a normal thing people would have chickens and then they got to be thinking they were too good for that and now they're bringing that back that people can raise chickens and that's a great example that's like having your barnyard flock in your backyard and that's a different scale of production than the poultry farm that may be raising either poultry for a you know, meat market or eggs for urban markets. And during the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th, there's there's guys that that you know get patents for box making machines, and they're creating the egg cases that are what put 360 eggs into something that can survive the railway car trip to the city where there are a lot of people who don't have that backyard, right? They're in boarding houses, so they can get eggs still, (laughs) or a chicken at a fresh market. So, yeah, the idea of growing your own remains a quest for many, many more than will ever be defined as a farmer. And yet we, we gain strength if we broaden the definition of what farming is to include folks that at least, uh, you know, invest time, money, and uh, land that they may have or 
or uh, growing pots on their back porch, hydroponic gardens, you know, whatever, because they're they're um, trying to feed themselves or increase their food security as a result. And that makes agriculture in the U.S. more than just a a a white predominantly white occupation. And I think that gets back to the the concerns of the caller because it's true that much of the policy has facilitated the growth of of a white farm a white farming nation. And uh if we broaden definitions then uh, it can help us be mindful of many others who participate as farmers. Uh, we we don't see those other folks in the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, but what that does is open up a whole world of exploration. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, actually, they don't say it in the books, but Dr. Tan in Little House in the Prairie is actually a homesteader and uh, lived fairly close to where the Ingalls uh, were and stayed there after they actually opened up the area. So uh, there's definitely a lot more stories to agriculture than, than get normally told. And I really do think that uh, Laura opens up sort of an archetype for people as a starting place to look at stuff and a viewpoint to take to start, but she really does pull you in and people get pulled in different directions. And um, I think a very interesting one is agriculture. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And so you mentioned, uh, was he of Japanese origin? The doctor or Chinese? Dr. Tan? No, no, he was he was African American. I I am not familiar with that character. I need to learn more. Uh, Oscar Michaud was a black film producer, and he actually homesteaded in Gregory, South Dakota. But he doesn't arrive until 1905. So there there are these these stories that are it's certainly worth more study that's the the amazing yeah amazing there's so much more to learn <laughs> there is definitely always a lot more to learn and i thank you very much for coming on today deb if uh, people want to learn more about your take on agriculture i believe you have some books Yes, well, my research area is African-American farm owners. So I've studied farm owners in Texas, and I've looked at black landowners generally. Uh, Books, if you look for Deborah Ann Reed, uh, they'll pop up. Um, There's one on the Agricultural Extension Service in Texas called Reaping a Greater Harvest. The one on black landowners is Beyond 40 Acres and a Mule. And I also have a book on interpreting agriculture museums and historic sites that's 
available. So, uh, and I, you know, if you have questions, I love to continue to talk about this. If another opportunity arises, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you being on the show and make sure everybody out there that you go to visit the Henry Ford if you get a chance. I I just I it boggles my mind that so few people I talk to know about Henry Ford and Greenfield Village and it's just a great place and a lot of stuff you can learn there. And with that, I think I am going to go ahead and call it our hour since we just ran out of time. Thank you for coming on to, uh, today, Deb, and everybody remember to brighten the corner where you are.